The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. Uh, turn with me to Luke uh, 22, 22nd chapter of Luke. We're working our way through Luke. Chapter 22 and 23 is all about the passion of Christ. It's his arrest is being beaten and spit upon and mistreated and then crucified. Chapter 24 is uh, the resurrection, and we'll be there on Easter Sunday, I hope, if I can do this. Uh, I, wanted, I wanted to show you something. The, the question that Luke 22 answers is, uh, what was Jesus willing to go through to save you? Now, you heard in, in Hebrews, I think I have it right here. Yes, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, notice that. The thing that motivates him here, it says, is the joy that was set before him. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But what Jesus went through is amazing. What we see in chapter uh, 22 are uh, the things that took place that are actually mind-boggling, uh, what Jesus went through, what he was willing to go through in order to provide salvation for you and me. And so if you'll turn there to Luke 22, and notice, first of all, the betrayal that's described for us here in chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Listen to this. For the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover was approaching. Unleavened bread was the week after the Passover. The Passover meal was taken on the 15th of Nisan. That's how it's pronounced by Jews, Nisan, actually. Um, It's the first month in the Jewish calendar, and Passover began the year on the 15th, but the 15th started at sundown, and so they took it on sundown, but in our reckoning, it would have been on the 14th in the evening, but that was the beginning of the 15th. And so he says, now the feast of unleavened bread, which follows Passover, which is also called Passover because they use these words interchangeably, it was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death. That's quite a statement, isn't it? They were seeking how they might put him to death because they were afraid of the people. Now let me understand, let me help you understand what he's saying here. He's not saying the reason they're putting him to death is because the people feared. He's saying they were looking for a way to put him to death without the people rising up against them because the people loved him and they loved to listen to him. And so they were afraid that the people would stop them from killing him. And so they were looking for a way to do away with him without the people knowing about it immediately. And then it says in verse 3, and Satan by the way, the chief priests are, this, are the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the rich. They were the, the elite in Israel, among the Jews. They had lots of money, lots of resources. They actually bought the right to be the chief priests, which are those who ran the worship in the temple. They paid a price for that to the Romans in order to have that right. And then the, the others that are mentioned here, The scribes are from the Pharisees. Now, not every Pharisee was a scribe, but the scribes came from the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were common people. They were working people. You remember what Paul did for a living? Anybody? 
it, it, it says in the King James, it was a tent maker, it was actually a leather worker. And all the other teachers, all the well-known Pharisees, were in a trade of some kind. They were in construction, or they were in, like, leather work, that kind of thing. So they were the people, they were kind of the back-to-the-Bible movement of Israel. Um, but they hated Jesus as well. This is where these two groups didn't like each other, but where they united was this. They both feared Jesus Christ because the people loved him. And they were ruling over the people, and it became very tenuous. Verse 3 says, and Satan entered into Judas. That's quite a phrase, isn't it? He, Satan entered into Judas. This is the first time we see Satan in the book of Luke since he, uh, since he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Once he left there, we don't hear of him again until now. And he enters into Judas. He begins to indwell him. He begins to influence him. And so he says, Satan entered into Judah, into Judas, rather, who was called Iscariot. That is, he was from Kyria, or Kerios, and so he was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. Here's a disciple. Now think of this. This is a, dis- a disciple of Jesus who was with him for three and a half years, who saw Jesus up close, who heard all of his teachings, saw him perform the miracles that he did, raising the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons. He saw all of that, and yet Satan is able to influence him to betray Jesus Christ. So in essence, the first thing that Jesus did for us just to get to the cross. The cross is horrible. What Jesus experienced on the cross is horrible, but he suffered on the way. He's just on the path there in chapter 22 this and 23. This is just to get him to the cross. And so he's betrayed by one of his own disciples. And then in verse 4 it says, And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. They wanted Ju- Judas to lead them to Jesus in a non-threatening location so that they could arrest him without a bunch of people being around and, and uh, getting all upset and trying to stop them. And, of course, that place was the Mount of Olives because it's going to tell us later that right during this time, Jesus would go up to the Mount of Olives and he would spend the night there in prayer and with his disciples, and then he would come back and teach in the temple every day. And so they're trying to get Judas to find a way, and probably this is what Judas is thinking at this point, because that's where he leads them. Because he's been going with Jesus. Think of this. This is a disciple of Jesus. He's been going with Jesus every evening to the Mount of Olives, where they would pray together and have a meal together, and then he would go back down to Jerusalem to the temple with Jesus and the other disciples and listen to Jesus teach. And the whole time, he is getting ready to betray the Lord Jesus. And it says they were glad and agreed to give him money, silver, 30 pieces of silver. And most of you have heard it's because it's in Deuteronomy that we're told that the price of a slave was 30 pieces of silver. Now that's about what a cheap car would cost you. $5,000 probably. Some of them reckoned it. He was going to sell him out. Isn't that amazing? one of his disciples, and they were glad to make the deal with him. They were gladly give him 30 pieces of silver in order to be able to do away with Jesus without getting themselves in trouble. So he consented, and he began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them 
apart from the crowd. That was the Mount of Olives. That's where they're going to confront him. When he's, there's no people around, just the disciples and Jesus. And then the second part of this in verses 7 through 38, you have the, the Last Supper. Why is it called the Last Supper? Well, this is the Passover Supper. It's the supper in which he introduces the New Covenant Supper, which we come to the Lord's table every week, or every month rather, once a month, and we take the Lord's Supper together. He introduces this Lord's Supper, but he's, they're celebrating the Passover meal. And in the midst of their Passover meal, the Last Supper, and it's the Last Supper because this is the last time Jesus is going to take this supper before he fulfills it. Because the Last Supper pointed to the cross. The lamb was slain, and they had to eat it in a certain way. Every family would have a lamb, a Passover lamb. They would take the blood of that lamb and put it over the doorpost. Remember? The initial Passover. And since then, they've been, they have been commemorating this. They've been commemorating the fact, that, the fact that God had delivered them from Egyptian bondage. And so Jesus goes to take the Passover with his friends and his betrayer, and his denier, you know, the guy that denied that he even knew Jesus, Peter, the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth, as John MacArthur calls him. And so he, it says he, so he, he uh, then they came to, on the first day of unleavened bread, which would have been on the, the 15th, that would be in the evening of the 14th. I know this is crazy, but this is how... This is how the, the Jewish calendar is. It starts in the evening. Now, God did this, so I said it's not crazy. I should say it's not crazy. It's the way it should be. Uh, see, if we did that, we wouldn't have the problem of, of a daylight saving time if we started every day when the sun went down. And he says, then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which this is the next day. Or it's actually the same day, but it's, for us, it would be the next day. The 15th started when the sun went down. They took the Passover. And the next morning, which was the rest of the day of the 15th, was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted a week. When they, couldn't, they ate bread without any leaven, which, which was a picture of sin. And so it was setting themselves apart for this. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that they may eat it, that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare, the, prepare it? Because it was typically, this was taken, the, the Passover meal was taken in a household. Jesus has his disciples, 10 disciples, 12 disciples. And so the 13 of them are going to celebrate this together. And so they asked him, where are we going to do this? Where are we going to prepare it? Because they haven't been staying in a house. They've been staying out in the olive uh, garden on Mount Olives, the Mount of Olives. And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man, not a woman, because the normal thing was a woman got the water and carried the pitcher back to the household. So this was unusual. A man was doing it. I heard somebody say this week, I wonder who it was. He said, a Oh, it was C.S. Lewis who said this. He said, a man's place is in the home. And it's true. A man's place is to be a priest of his own household. That was the understanding. But the women did this chore. It was a normal thing for them to do it. I think it was a good idea, don't you? <laughs> and, and so uh, it says... 
where you, you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. Wow. It almost sounds like Jesus has control over the events of this world, doesn't it? And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, this was a pilgrim uh, celebration, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so people would come from all over the world to celebrate. Jews from all over the Roman Empire would come and celebrate this. And so what would happen is people would rent out their rooms to families that lived in some other place that would come there and they'd be able to take Passover in one of the guest rooms of a person's house. And verse 12 says, and Jesus says, and he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. That's the place we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And they left, or the Last Supper, the, the Passover meal. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when you see pictures of the Passover meal, the Last Supper, you notice it's always pictured with everybody on one side of the table. That's because Eslis Johnson said what happened was Jesus said, okay, fellas, come over on this side of the table so they can take a picture of us. That's what it looks like, doesn't it? That's a famous painting. But they reclined at table. They gathered around the table and they reclined. They didn't sit in chairs. They reclined at table. So they would be on one elbow with the other arm. They would get the food and they would all eat together. They would take this Passover together. And then in the next section, in verses 37 through 46, you have this section where it talks about Jesus sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Now, it doesn't say he sweat drops of blood, but it says they were like great drops of blood, his sweat. Now, there is actually a medical condition where a person can be under such severe stress that they actually, blood comes out of their pores, but it's very, very unusual. And he says here, it was like blood. And he proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. He did this every evening as he was teaching in the temple. Now, he's come to Jerusalem for what? He's come to Jerusalem to be arrested and tried and crucified for you. That's why he's there. And so it says, and he came, and he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him as they did every evening. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Because he knew, he knew exactly what was going to take place. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, this is amazing. This is like us eavesdropping on something that's almost too holy to even pay attention to. We ought to plug our ears. Listen to what Jesus says. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The cup is used over and over again in the Bible in this way, the symbolic way of the wrath of God being poured out. And Jesus is going to drink the wrath of God for us. And so he says, you think, well, this is easy. After all, he's the eternal son of God. And Jesus says, Father, if, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. 
and he stops in mid-sentence. This is a, this is a sense you, do, you use when you're teaching Greek to students because it's a very unusual construction because he stops right in the middle of the sentence and he says, yet not what my, not my will but yours be done. He stops himself. In other words, Jesus actually, as he was praying, was sweating so hard that it was like great drops of blood. In other words, he was under great agony. Great, great stress. He's about to go to the cross and be separated from the Father. Remember him crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For all eternity, the Son has been experiencing the presence of the Father in heaven and then on earth when he came to earth. And now he's going to be on the cross and be separated from his Father. And so he asked him, If you are willing, remove this cup from me, but not my will but yours to be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And you can imagine, you ever been in that kind of situation where you thought your world was going to crash and you're actually praying with great intensity and fervency because you're pleading with God to save you? One time I was driving in Fresno and a carload of guys in a little tiny car I had, a little 4CV, uh, I think it was a Simca 4CV, and and um, tiny little four-passenger car going down Blackstone, probably 50 miles an hour. That was where all the traffic went. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if I just lost attention or what, but I hit the curb in the center, and it started spinning my car. I prayed. As I was spinning, I prayed. And I prayed fervently. Because I was, the thought hit me, I'm going to kill all these kids in this car with me. And I spun around twice. And finally banged into the center and stopped. But it was amazing how quickly I could pray. And sometimes in our lives, and here's Jesus about to go to the cross, and he says, if there's any way... Can you take this cup, remove this cup from me? But not my will, your will be done. And so this angel comes and strengthens him. And he's in such agony, it says, he was praying fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Can you identify with that? They're in the garden and they fall asleep while he's praying. Of course, what what we've seen in the the account as we're going along, Jesus tells them what's going to happen in in Jerusalem, but they can't understand what he's saying when he says, I'm going to be arrested and beaten and spit upon and mocked. And they're going to crucify me. And then I'm going to, three days later, I'm going to raise from the dead, raise from the dead. And it says they didn't understand the words. And they're in Nana land. Here they are. Jesus is praying. And if they would have had their ears open listening to what he was saying, it would have been stunning. If they could have watched him in this agony. But it says they were sleeping. And so he comes to his disciples, which were a little ways away from where he was. And he says to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And they are going to enter into temptation. 
Remember, Peter enters into such temptation that he denies even knowing Jesus three times. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. That was the identifying act. The guy that I kiss, that's Jesus. He told these group of soldiers that he's leading there. But Jesus says to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Isn't that amazing? You see, the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite designation for himself, and it comes out of the book of Daniel, and it's describing the king of the kingdom of God, the one who has been given all authority. So it's a, it's a title of great authority. And Jesus says to him, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Isn't that amazing? When those who were around him saw what was going on, was, was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. This is the only one of the gospels that tells us that Jesus did this part. He healed him. Of course, this is a doctor, you know, Dr. Luke. And he says, it sounds like what happened was he cut his ear off. Jesus picks up the ear and, and heals it, puts it back on his, on his head. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple elders and elders who had come against them against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would, you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Now Jesus kept saying, if you remember, he said it and started in, in John chapter 2 when he was at the wedding of Cain of Galilee and his mother, remember his mother wanted him to do something about the fact they'd run out of wine? And Jesus says to her, woman, what does that have to do with you and me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And he mentions this over and over again, his hour coming. Well, his hour turns out to be that point of time when the eternal Son of God, the Son of Man, the one with all authority in heaven and upon earth, is going to be put in the hands of men and they're going to do with him what they want to do with him. They're going to treat him the way they want to treat him. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the chief priest. And here he's, uh, he's treated like a criminal. In fact, in verses, in verses 47 through 53, this entire account, uh, Jesus is there in the courtyard of Caiaphas, who is the chief priest, the high priest. And they're beating him. They're examining him. They're not, it isn't the full force it's going to be in the next chapter, but they're being abusive to him. They're mocking him. Jesus, and so Jesus is there with them. Verse 54, well, having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter following at a distance. After, why was he following at a distance? 
He didn't want to be identified with him. It was dangerous. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I did not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too, aren't you? And Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he's a Galilean too. How would he know he's a Galilean? Well, the way he knows, he would know, like some of you are from Oklahoma or Texas, because he had an accent. And the Galileans had an accent. And they looked on them the way that people in the United States in the West typically look at uh, people in the Ozarks, from the Ozarks. And so he heard his accent. He says, you're one of them. You're a Galilean. All of his disciples are Galileans. And, G- and Peter said, man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another comes and does this. And, but Peter said, I don't know him. And then get this. This is the most amazing, poignant scene in all the New Testament Gospels. In verse 61, it says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. It may have been that he was inside the house and he's looking through a window. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered when he saw Jesus looking right at him. He remembered the word that the Lord, of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. The rooster crowing was used to describe any time before sunup. So in the middle, it's in the night as, as they are, have arrested him and brought him before the high priests. So Peter has sees Jesus looking right into his eyes. And he had just denied him. He had just denied that he even knew him three times. You see what he's going through? Isn't this amazing what Jesus was willing to go through to get to the cross and take your place on the cross? Judas has agreed to sell him and did sell him for 30 pieces of silver. And Peter denies him three times. That's why later on, Jesus, when he restores Peter, he's going to ask him three times, Peter, Simon, do you love me? Peter got irritated at it, but he had denied him three times, and so he confesses three times that, yes, he loves him. And Jesus restores him. And it says in verse 62, he went out and wept bitterly. You would have too. He goes out and weeps bitterly. Now those men who were holding him, Jesus in custody were, were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against, against him, blaspheming. Amazing, isn't it? This, this really stuns me, what Jesus was willing to go through just to get to the cross. So he's abandoned by his chief spokesman, which is 
the apostle Peter, because he's the one who does what on the day of Pentecost? What does Peter do on the day of Pentecost? He preaches. He preaches the first gospel sermon in the church age when the spirit had been poured out and Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel to all those people that gathered. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. And this is the guy who abandoned Jesus, who denied him. Wow, what an amazing story. Well, notice this. Why was he willing to go through all this? Why was Jesus willing to go through all these things? Here's the reason I think. I think this sums it up. This is Jude chapter, I mean Jude verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Jesus is going to present us to the Father with great joy. Now you can take this to either be our joy, which I think it's going to be our joy, or Jesus' joy, which he's going to have joy as well. In fact, it actually says in great joy, we experience it when he with great joy presents us to the Father. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine right now that Jesus is going to have great joy when he presents you to the Father and he says, this is one that I went to the cross for, that I died for and was raised for. This is one who's been saved by my work on the cross and he does it with great joy. And that's why we're told back in Hebrews chapter 12, it says he despised the shame It was a horrible, horrible ordeal that he went through. But because of the joy set before him. The joy of pleasing the Father. I think it's the hardest thing in the world to believe that God's actually delighted in us. It's it's hard for us to believe that when when Jesus takes us, when the very last thing he's going to do is present us to the Father, and we're all going to be in great joy. He's finished the work. Our idea of what Christ has done for us becomes so small because we're so prone to think that I've got to do better, I've got to try more, I've got to get my act together. And we forget about the fact that God has done something so glorious and amazing in your life. He has so supernaturally changed you by giving you the Holy Spirit, forgiving your sins, declaring you to be righteous with him. That is right before him. And he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. There's not something else you need from him. There's no second blessing or third blessing. There, is a, there are a million blessings that have already been given to us. Ephesians chapter 1 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has in the past blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And he begins to enumerate them. And where it started was he set his love on you. Why would he love you? Have you ever wondered that? Why he would love you? I don't know. I don't know why he loves us. But he does. And that's why he sent the Son. And he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And he has equipped us. He has equipped us to live our lives for him. He has given us the spirit of God. You can't get anything more 
powerful than that. There is no powerful experience that goes beyond the fact that you have received the Holy Spirit at salvation, that he's come to live in you. He's come to empower you. He has come to enable you to walk before God as a child of God. And that's why Jesus was willing to go through all of this. He was willing to get to the cross at a very high cost. And then next week we'll see what happened on the cross when he goes to the cross on our behalf, in our place, and pays the penalty for our sins so that we can be rightly related to God. And so when he brings us before the Father, it's going to be with great joy. So it was with great joy that he was willing to go to the cross because he knew what he was accomplishing. He was fulfilling the Father's will and plan to save you. Sometime when you go through Ephesians chapter 1 and notice the three persons of the Trinity there, that the Father planned it, That is, he planned your salvation. He determined he was going to save you. And then the Son redeems you through his work on the cross. And then the Spirit seals you in Christ. What more could you have? What more could you possibly ask for than what he has given you? You know what he wants you to do? Is to give him thanks for what he's done for you. He wants you to praise his name for what he has done for you. The Bible isn't a self-help book. It's not to teach you some miraculous way, some tricky way that you can get through the Christian life. The Bible is filled with these declarations of what God has done for us and what God will do for us on a daily basis. And the fact that Jesus would pay this price, that he would... He would go through all these things just to get to the cross so that he could die in our place, so that he could purchase us, so he could redeem us, so he could pay the... Remember in, in Mark ten forty five it says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life a ransom for many. You know what ransom means? It was the price of a slave. It was to set a slave free. And that's what he's done. He's paid the price to set us free. So we are free to worship the living God and live our lives for his glory. Ain't nothing better than that. There's just nothing in all of life you could pursue that's better than that. Living your life for the glory of the God who set his love upon you and called you to himself. And so what you have here in this picture in in Luke 22 is all that Jesus was willing to go through. Don't you hate it when somebody, I remember, you know, when somebody helps ask you to help them uh, move and you get to the house and they haven't packed anything? Some of you are sitting right here, huh? And isn't, isn't, isn't that, don't, don't, don't you just want to walk away? It's just too hard. I don't mind helping you, but good night. At least pack your stuff up. (laughs) Jesus went through all of this that we just read because of the joy set before him, the joy of presenting you to his father as those who are alive from the dead and are the children of God. Aren't you glad of that? That That is just, that's beyond our ability to even imagine 
And he has done this for us. We are the apple of his eye, the Bible says. In other words, God takes great delight in what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. And he wants our hearts to be so moved by it that we actually praise him. Can I show you something? I was going to tell my, the class tonight because we're going through the one faith, but I want to share with you. If you'll turn over to Colossians 3.16 for just a second. Colossians 3.16. Colossians is right after Philippians. And 3 is right after 2 and 2 is right after 1. Uh, Colossians 3.16. Get this. Now, this is parallel to what Paul says. This is Paul writing this, and it's parallel to what he wrote in Ephesians 5, 18, where it says, be filled with the Spirit. But here, he's, this is the way he puts it, because he's talking about Christ. Throughout the book of Colossians, this is a Christ-centered book. In other words, our pursuit in life as Christians ought to be to come to know Christ. I mean to really get to know him. And listen to this. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. He's talking to the church. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. What does that mean? Well, he tells you right after it. He says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Uh Uh-oh. You mean we have to talk to one another about the word of God? That's exactly what he's saying. He says, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanks, thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. In other words, we ought to be singing the word of God to each other. But that is that Jesus has broken down the, the middle wall of partition. Do you know what that was? The middle wall of partition in the temple was a wall that kept the Gentiles and Jews separated. Gentiles could come to the, the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go anyplace else. The wall's been broken down. What God has done is every person he saves, he brings into the body of Christ, and we are members one of another. And so he has broken down every wall. And then 1 Peter chapter 5 says, he is our peace. Oh, no, that's what Ephesians says. He is our peace, and he's broken down this wall of partition. In 1 Peter 5, it says, cast all your anxieties on him because it matters to him about you. I want to give you a song to sing to each other. It's, it's called, He Is Our Peace. It's a real simple little song. But you can, you're, you can sing this scripture to each other. That's how, you, that's how you let the word of God fill your hearts. Because whatever fills your heart is going to come out of your mouth, right? That's what the Bible says. What comes out of our mouths is what fills the heart. Oh, that's scary, isn't it? He is our peace. He has broken down every wall. He is our peace. He is our peace. He is our peace. Sing with me. He has broken down every wall. He is our peace. He is our peace. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. That's First Peter. He is our peace. He is our peace. You know, when you lose your temper, do what my wife does. She starts singing that song to me. We, we, we have got this treasure 
this incredible treasure, this whole library that God's given to us, and it's all about Jesus. And he wants us to be filled with the word of Christ, this word about Christ. And he wants us to talk to each other and sing to each other this glorious message. So let's try it one more time. Sing with me. He is our peace. He has broken down every wall. He is our peace. He is our peace. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. He is our peace. He is our peace. Okay, before the sun goes down, sing that to somebody. You know, you, you can sing to your wife or your husband. They don't care what it sounds like. But sing it to somebody. Share the word of God with each other. Be filled with the word of Christ. That's what he wants in our lives. Let me pray for you. Our Father, we bow our hearts right now. I just want to ask you to fill the hearts of all of us, every, every person here and every person in this fellowship, in this church, Father. Help us to be people that are filled with the word of Christ. And we can't help it. It just keeps coming out of us in all of our conversations. Father, I thank you so much for this message about Jesus Christ. What a Savior he is. It overwhelms us to think what he was willing to go through for us. And even though it was a difficult path that he went down, he was willing to take every step. He was willing to face every disappointment. He was willing to face being betrayed and being denied. He was willing to face being treated like a criminal. In fact, they're going to convict him of that and they're going to crucify him on our behalf. How we thank you for this Savior that we have. We rejoice in him and we thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.